Здарова, бандиты! Hello and welcome to Tengri Dome, episode 12. I'm your host, Iggy, and today we're going to be talking about UFC 262. And uh, the more interesting fights that happened on UFC 262, well, it's really just three fights. Uh, Barboza Burgos, um, Benil Darius, uh, Tony Ferguson, and Chucky Aldous versus uh, Mike Chandler. Uh, there's really nothing else, uh, not a lot of ground to cover there. Uh, well, I guess on the prelims, uh, we, we, we've had uh, Andre Muniz versus Jacare Souza. Muniz uh, broke Jacare's arm. Uh, mercifully, they didn't uh, get an. They, the production team wasn't able to get an angle where they actually showed the submission that uh, showed the angle from which you could see Jacare's arm break. But, I mean, you could hear it. Which is, in a sense, even more, even more gross and uh, unsettling. I mean, I can handle seeing violence just fine, like uh, cuts, uh, bruises, all that stuff. It's it's all right, but uh, seeing limb breaks. I mean, limb breaks just uh, give me the heebie-jeebies. They also take a, such a long time to recover from as well. So, ah. Uh, makes me wince just thinking about it. And uh, I guess, uh, I suppose I should chime in for a bit on the things that uh, accompanied one of the fights. Uh, that uh, It, it wasn't, wasn't a thing that happened in the fight, it was rather a post-fight interview. And if you saw the event, you're likely to understand uh, what I'm referring to in particular. And that is, of course, Benny Darius chiming in with his expert opinion on uh, Marxism. And, uh, well, MMA fighters chiming in with uh, being the educated policy and uh, the ideology experts and geopolitics as experts that they are, uh, yeah, I mean, it's always a doozy, always a joy uh, to listen to someone who doesn't uh, uh, doesn't even, like, read Wikipedia to get, his inf- to get their information, but rather watches PragerU and stuff like that. Uh, Love it. Love it. If my sarcasm could be more dense, I suppose it it would gain the ability to bend light at this rate. Uh, Also, uh, if my voice sounds weird or that uh, the sound quality seems a bit off, uh, it's because I'm recording this at 1am. And uh, because I don't want to wake everyone up in my house, I decided to just... uh, Because I was also afraid of losing my uh, trail of thought, I decided to just uh, get get on with it. And I turned uh, the volume on my mic all the way up. So, to quote Ed on the MMA pod the other day, Don't come come at me with your comments about my audio quality or or I'll beat you up. I know I'm here. I'm sitting here recording the podcast. <laughs> All right, I guess uh, I should stop waffling about and just uh, get into it. So to kick things off, to kick uh, the fight that kicked the main main card off was uh, Edson Barboza versus uh, Shane Burgos, and uh, Burgos defeated. Uh, well, I'm sorry, Bar- Barboza defeated Burgos with uh, by a by a knockout. Uh, it was it was a really strange one. My read going into this fight was uh, well a, a normal Barboza read in that if uh, Burgos is able 
to enforce pressure to to able to get Barbosa to the fence and uh, uh, stay reasonably defensively reasonably sharp uh, defensively he he'd be able to win this one he'd be able to steamroll Bar- Barbosa like uh, most everyone does everyone who is not completely brain dead that is because uh, as we all know Barbosa has this tendency in that he needs to plant in order to enforce, in order to utilize his best uh, weapons, which is, uh, of course, his kicks and uh, his power punching. But if uh, uh, you're able to keep him resetting, uh, able to keep him moving backwards, panicking and circling, then you should be able to exhaust him and then beat him up. What happened... Uh, with, I said that with the caveat that if uh, Burgos hasn't been uh, hasn't been rattled by the Josh Emmett fight too much, he should be able to do it just fine. But also in the Emmett fight, he's shown a concerning tendency, a concerning trait, which uh, cost him the fight this time around as well, in that he doesn't really doesn't really care all that much about being hit coming in which is exactly what Barbosa was uh, has been able to do from the start and uh, if, if he gave him he gave him too much space from the start and uh, Barbosa as we all know like really likes the, those uh, neutral space exchanges uh, an educated fighter's game plan against Barbosa should be shouldn't be like just barge uh, after him just uh, just go gunning after him if you intend to do that you should should uh, have some attributes or tools in place uh, to uh, i suppose uh keep barbosa panicking keeping concerned uh keeping con- concerned about getting uh, hit by someone with uh, some actual consequences which at featherweight uh, has been uh, curtailed a little because uh, lightweight is obviously full of uh, pretty pretty huge hitters uh meanwhile at lightweight well burgos is uh isn't uh, a pitter patter puncher himself it's still not someone he, he's not at the level of someone like uh, justin gagey who is a pound for pound hitter pound for pound one of the hardest hitters in the sport and also gagey was able to get barbosa uh, Barbosa backing up because uh, he came. He was willing to kick with Bar- Barbosa because, uh, funnily enough, Barbosa himself, despite being a great kicker, uh, really doesn't like getting kicked up. He doesn't really have that great of a kicking defense. And so, Gagey was able to Gagey was able to enforce right from the start the threat of his kicks. Uh, he kicked with Barbosa and then came in came in behind the kicks, came in threatening the kicks, and that allowed him to cross um, huge distances quite quickly. And uh, so by uh, basically by the first minute of the fight, Barbosa was was already squished up against the fence. and uh, Gagey's uh, uh, sweeping cage cutting tools like uh, his uh, round kicks and his uh, uh, hooks. Uh, was what uh, did Barbosa in. Meanwhile, with Burgos, he kicked Barbosa a couple of times, and when he did kick, yeah, he had uh, uh, the moment 
Berger started kicking with Barbosa, he started having more success, but he didn't stick to it or devised ways to build upon it. And and so a lot of the fight was just basically Berger's uh, staying planted, getting planted in the center of the cage with uh, by Barbosa's leg kicks and trying to get in with the jab while stepping in well with the with a very pronounced step in to uh, get uh, where he wants to be and uh, that just uh, essentially gave barboza carte blanche to kick his lead leg from under him and so his uh, range finding tool and his uh, his main tool to eat up space and find his range was uh, taken away taken away from him and so Berger started trying to barge in with uh, body shots behind uh, head movement, which uh, wasn't really all that varied. He had the same rhythm on it. And by having the same rhythm on it, I mean he would just... Uh, he wouldn't, like, switch it up. He wouldn't disguise it with anything else. And when Burgers uh, started kicking to the body with the linear kicks, uh, that also was that added a layer that allowed him to do... to eat up space more consistently, but he didn't really stick to it to an extent that would allow him to uh, dictate the exchanges. So Burgos would uh, barge in, uh, utilizing the same the same uh, inside slip over and over again and get, uh, get dinged with hard shots to the body and to the head. Also, one aspect that should be mentioned is that since Barboza... Uh, moved down the weight, he now has an actual punching edge over a lot of people, over a lot of fighters in there. And so while he may not have the same speed advantage he used to enjoy, because Barbosa, as we as uh, seen in his lightweight bouts, was always almost always more explosive and faster than the other guy, uh, at featherweight, a lot of the guys are able to match him speed for speed, but... Uh, not really able to match him power for power, punch for punch. And so Burgos, despite despite having a really good chin of his own, was uh, visibly visibly rattled every time Barboza was able to connect with the, with his punches, with his power punches, with his with his power counters. Honestly, <laughs> uh, this may sound this may sound funny, but uh, it's it's I, I think it's literally true. Is that uh, but it was a gaugey esque. It was a gaugey-esque performance from for, from Barboza. <laughs> like, uh, after Gagey demolished Barboza and after Gagey had his stylistic turnaround, he's now the Barboza of the lightweight division and Barboza is the Barboza of uh, the featherweight division. <laughs> uh, using... Using the threat of their power to limit exchanges and to dictate exchanges on their own terms, <laughs> timing people on entry with counter punches. <laughs> uh, the idea is very funny to me. Like, Gagey beats Barbosa and then goes like, uh, it's like high in Highlander. <laughs> I beat you and now I gain your power, <laughs> I gain your abilities and skills, your memories. Uh, Though I suppose in this case, uh, gaining Barbosa's tra- uh, major traits uh, has actually curtailed Justin a little. I mean, I just, I just really, really miss pressuring Justin, and I would like him to go back to it. Even though I do think that his um, 
even even though I do think that uh, backfoot styles are viable, are a viable way to fight, and they look cool, and that there are there are cool way to fight, and they're interesting, because uh, obviously there are two ways, there are two most the two most consistent ways to get finishes is to is uh, is counters and attrition. The thing about uh, being an aggressive counter puncher is just it just allows you to get finishes more consistently because it wears your opponent out. Consistent pressure wears your opponent out, and uh, counters are obviously uh, extremely hard to see at the best of times. But there are layers to counters, and uh, counters that uh, don't go beyond the first entry are usually, while tricky to navigate. Uh, at a sufficient skill level a fighter shouldn't struggle with them all that much really uh, especially a skilled striker but anyway that's uh, a topic for another day uh, so the point is that you can't just uh, well, Habib was able to just run after Barboza but uh, the thing is that he had uh, another layer to his threat that is his ground game and that's why uh, Despite being incredibly reckless, uh, Barboza was still willing to concede even more space than usual because, uh, naturally, the instinct most fighters have against uh, wrestlers or grapplers is that they wish to avoid collisions at all costs because they think uh, they think every second spent there, spent in there with a wrestler or a grappler is... Uh, uh, more time for the their opponent to enforce their A game and get them to the ground or get them uh, in a clinch situation where they where the striker is outclassed. Burgos naturally doesn't have that, so what he should have done was to mix his game up a little, not be so predictable on the entry. He should have applied. Uh, he should have varied his rhythm, fainted more, varied his entries, went, uh, punched off kicks, kicked off punches. Just more variety would have served him very well in this fight. Barbosa isn't just a layup uh, simply because you're a pressure fighter. You, know, you either have to have superior ring craft, more variety on the feet, or some another layer to your game that will uh, open opportunities for you, and especially what's especially crucial is that you shouldn't just barge into range against Barboza because Barboza's natural response to being faced with a threat that's in front of him is to just uh, is to throw hands. He just wants you gone. He wants to blast you out of the out of his range, and uh, create in order to create more space for him. Uh, more space for him to work, to push you back to neutral space and then kick you up. Attacking recklessly, especially at featherweight, where Barboza holds a power edge, is just going to get you mulched. So, funnily enough, despite despite the fact uh, that a lot of us, a lot of us analysts, usually shit on fighters uh, whenever they switch switch weight classes, or especially, and especially drop down, drop down a weight class when especially when they've shown certain struggles with weight cutting at uh, their previous class uh despite all that Barboza still was able to gain enough of a attribute edge 
over his uh, over his fellow competitors for it to make a certain amount of sense in retrospect but that uh, didn't fundamentally change who he is as a fighter all it did him all it did was uh, to get give him just uh to make the margin a little thinner to make it a little uh, a little trickier to navigate Nevertheless, having said all that, uh, that um, well, uh, of course, I would be remiss not to touch uh, upon this, uh, upon that knockout, upon the finishing sequence, which was uh, very concerning, uh, actually, actually very scary, because uh, a lot of the time when a fighter reacts like that, it's usually a sign of something going catastrophically wrong. Burgos ate a lot of uh, very hard shots in the fight up until the knockout, and uh, he was he got rattled in the first round and then uh, got hit with uh, some more very very hard uh, shots in the second. And uh, it wasn't like the right hand Barbosa landed was any harder or cleaner than those strikes, but um, the way he reacted to it was. Uh, uh, was um, it, it actually gave me flashbacks to some of the boxing fights that I've seen where a guy subsequently died either because uh, because a lot of the time when a person gets repeatedly hit in the head and then reacts uh, has this delayed sort of response to it even when they do not get knocked out it can either and just uh, pass out for let's say in the locker room it's uh, usually a it's usually a sign of either a brain bleed or a subdural hematoma or any number of scary things. So, if um, Burgess's team is smart, they've taken to they've taken him to a hospital right away. <laughs> like, uh, so Barbosa hit him with a with a normal one too. Like uh, he hit him with a jab on the, the top of his brow, and then followed it up with a loopy right hand that uh, looped around Barbosa's uh, shoulder and hit him, uh, uh, hit him on the jaw, and uh, for a whole for a solid five seconds it looked like uh, Burgess was fine, and uh, then he just stumbled backwards and collapsed and fell completely face down. Uh, fell face down completely unconscious and uh, was essentially just unresponsive uh, for for quite a bit so uh really really freaky really freaky knockout and so uh, well uh, burgers was able to stand up and uh, come to his senses after that but uh, that doesn't really say us all that much because uh uh, concussions are weird like that, and brain injury is strange like that. It uh, can take a while to show. So, I'm anxiously waiting for a health update from Burgers. I'm definitely going to keep uh, to keep my hand on the pulse for that one. That probably sounded way more morbid than I intended it to be, but <laughs> you get what I mean. So, uh, best of luck to Burgers. Uh, hope hope he recovers well. Hope he doesn't uh, doesn't suffer from any lasting so, uh, consequences uh, after this fight. But yeah, um, tough for Burgers. Uh, it doesn't seem doesn't look like he's trying to adapt. If anything, he's uh, kind of regressed, and uh, uh, he he's not really showing any more nuance. 
to his uh, fighting style, doesn't mix things up all that much, and uh, uh, his attributes aren't going to be there for him forever. And so if he continues to take beatings like that, I, I think uh, it would even be... If, um, if I were his coach, I would uh, sit him down for a long, long talk and uh, try to either hammer into the idea of switching his style a bit, uh, changing his style a bit, and uh, if he doesn't listen to that, then maybe uh, it's uh, time to talk about whether it's even worth to continue fighting this way, to worth if it's even worth continuing his career, because uh, you don't want a guy, a talented guy like that, to hang around in the mid being mid-ranked and fighting other mid-ranked mid-ranked guys, fighting sideways essentially for however however many years, going on a losing skit, taking a whole bunch of damage, and then just uh, just retiring as a shell of yourself. Uh, and uh, the next fight isn't um, uh, isn't much more encouraging. Well, the next fight I wish to talk about isn't any more encouraging in that particular respect. The next fight on the card was actually Caitlin Chikagian versus uh, Vivian Araujo, which uh, uh, which I didn't watch. <laughs> and then the next one uh, was uh, Rogerio Bonterin versus uh, Matt Schnell. I have an irrational, I have an irrational hatred towards Matt Schnell. I just really extremely dislike him, and a lot of it is not uh, brought upon by his fighting style per se, but the way he holds himself, the way he carries himself. Like he always is, is, he always has this like Bruce Lee esque stance, and he always moves his head from side to side. It's not really head movement per se. It's not really milling. It's uh, like milling in the sense, like, uh, think of it as a fighter's idol animation. Like, moving to a particular rhythm, like the, uh, like the Muay Thai, uh, the Muay Thai pendulum step, like, uh, back, uh, sh where they shift their weight forwards and then backwards. Or they, or like, dance with their, with their lead leg light, uh, moving around with a light lead leg. Uh, in order to check kicks and uh, threaten teeps and uh, boxers moving around the ring while uh, circling their fists in the air and uh, moving their head in, a, in like a in like a circle in order to incorporate defense into their, into their offense more uh, more easily so it's not even that it's just Matt Schnell trying to look as cool as he possibly can while looking ex extremely extreme, while trying to look as focused as possible, like he he's always he always has this frown in his face, always tr he always looks like he's posing for a movie poster for a for an action movie poster and uh, just bugs the hell out of me. <laughs> just fight like a normal person, please. <laughs> Even Tony Ferguson doesn't do shit like that. And so my annoyance with the match now was so great that I actually skipped this fight <laughs> and I didn't revisit it on uh, my rewatch. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry but I just I just can't handle the I can't handle this dude. <laughs> so uh Benio Darius versus Tony Ferguson. <laughs> Let's get into it. Uh co main uh, Benio Darius versus Tony Ferguson, long long back Benny 
didn't release the beast this time, not really. And uh, in a sense, I, I'm almost glad he didn't. Because uh, Tony... It's just sad, the way Tony looked. Tony looks old and short. Well into short territory, I think. I mean, it's always tricky to uh, pin down a fighter as short. And uh, it can be a bit of a... Uh, it's often treated as a bit of a cop-out. Like, uh, oh, you just don't wish to admit that the other guy was simply better. And uh, no, in this case, I think uh, I think it's safe to say that uh, Tony is pretty much done. He looked slow. He looked even more hittable than usual. And Tony is always hittable at the best of times. But uh, his reactions were simply not there. Because when you... when Benio Darius is not a particularly fast man. He's not a particularly durable man. Uh, nor is he a particularly outstanding athlete in any respect. Save or perhaps maybe his coordination on the ground. But even then, he doesn't really do anything crazy on the ground. He just, it's just, he's just very fundamentally sound on the ground. And his punches are always extremely loopy and noodly. They just have a lot of weight transfer on them. That's why he's such a, such a sneakily, sneakily extremely hard hitter. Because he throws his entire body into every shot. And he throws himself into every shot to such an extent that uh, it kind of ex takes his head offline by accident. <laughs> so it's kind of like he has built-in defense against oncoming strikes, uh, kind of uh, just as a side effect of how he throws them. Which, come to think of it, is actually a pretty good, good trait to have. It's a trait that's often encouraged in the, the Soviet boxing system and uh, how the way Soviet boxers uh, train they, their punching mechanics. But uh, nonetheless... Uh, yeah, uh, Benny was able to get into range and uh, get uh, was able to pressure and get uh, Tony to the cage and then get takedowns from there. And uh, he pretty much was able to get takedowns at will. And uh, Tony didn't really offer him all that much on the ground. He attempted. Uh, there were there were some choke attempts. There were some sub attempts, but. Uh, he didn't really build to his base uh, off those sub-attempts, didn't really try to fight grips, didn't really try to uh, try to get his hips uh, uh, from under Benny. And uh, much of the fight was uh, Benny tuning up Tony on the feet, getting him to the ground, uh, staying, laying on top of uh, Tony for a bit, maybe lending some, uh, some offense that uh, Tony did a uh, kind of sort of decent job at defending, but he was more concerned with trying to strike off the off the back, uh, off his back, as opposed to trying to get off his back, which is uh, what ended up costing him the fight. And uh, there was a cool scramble there, a cool scramble for the leg lock in uh, in one of the later rounds, and. Uh, yeah, Benny just secured that leg and ringed on it. And uh, according to Benio himself, he heard things pop uh, inside to inside of Tony's knees, and Tony actually screamed in agony as uh, Benny was uh, twisting that that leg every which way. But he nevertheless, it's Tony, so he didn't tap, and uh, it uh, probably probably earned himself. Earned himself a layoff. 
a pretty lengthy layoff, given how long it takes usually to recover from ligament tears. So he really should have tapped, but uh, Benil let go of the uh, submission for whatever reason. Maybe out of mercy, I don't know. And uh, laid on top of Tony uh, until the fight ended and uh, he got his unanimous decision. Uh, like, hard to talk about this fight without mentioning just uh, how badly Tony got screwed over by the UFC. Just uh, marinated for most of his prime uh, while the UFC was trying to pursue this pretty much pointless Habib fight. And uh, pointless, maybe pointless in retrospect, but uh, I mean, if you if you think about it, it uh, it's, uh, wouldn't wouldn't really have been that the, the mad uh, the mad scramble for positions, uh, mad submission scramble. It wouldn't have been a fight that uh, consisted of nothing but mad scrambles the whole way through. Uh, Habib would have likely just sat on top of Tony and um, pounded him out for however many rounds. And, uh, yeah, then Thomas also chimed in on the commentary and talked about how Tony was uh, never developed any fundamentals because he relied on his attributes so much. And in a, in a way, it's true, but uh, I refuse to give Dean Thomas any credit for this observation because his most prominent fighter is fucking Tyron Woodley. So really, fuck you, Dean Thomas. Especially fuck you because he he was uh, especially fucked in Thomas because he was such a also such a smug asshole about it, while well, talking about it. So just uh, uh, got on my nerves a little. He got on my nerves that time, and uh, yeah, Tony's uh, Tony always had such an interesting and unique style, and uh, despite being so unorthodox. His game always made sense. He always had a process to it. You were never like... Uh, when you watch Tony in his prime, you were never like, but why? Why are you doing these things? You're never... Uh, you're never slapping your... Uh, you're never banging your head against a desk when, as you sometimes see with, the, like, say, Dustin Poirier fights whenever he jumps, jumps the gillies. And uh, with Tony, it was always... Uh, all his tools were well integrated into his overall style and were very uh, they made sense for what he was trying to accomplish but uh, this type when you have this type of style when the moment you drop down from 100% to like 97, 95, 90% just all the wheels simply fall off the bus just you're done if you can't rely, if you can't uh, reliably uh, use your attributes as a crutch, that's it for you, essentially. Uh, and yeah, uh, so while they were pursuing this uh, Habib fight, Tony just got ground out in constant pointless sideways matchups that uh, really didn't get him anywhere. Especially the Cerrone fight, it's uh, it's the one fight that uh, always makes me grit my teeth a little because Tony gets hit with everything Cerrone throws in the first round, and it's uh, it was it was a very concerning fight for Tony. Uh, I remember thinking about it because uh, Tony kind of just his reactions looked way slower, his vision looked like uh, it was starting to go. And uh, it's it now it feels like a bit of a sign of things to come. 
And I mean, a lot of people are talking about how Justin Gaethje pretty much broke Tony, but uh, I don't think uh, that's really it. While, yes, the raw damage from that fight was extremely uh, unsettling, uh, the next two fights that he lost, that is Chucky Olives and Benil Darush, aren't really that. It's mostly fundamentally sound grapplers exploiting Tony's uh, Tony's uh, newfound inability to uh, utilize his, his attributes to their fullest and get from positions from which he was uh, usually being able to get up from, to get out from, uh, in his prime. And now it's gone. Also, consider Tony's history of uh, battling, uh, battling mental demons. He's in a demons and uh, having mental health issues and uh, having like. Uh, if you look at his career as him being constantly at war with himself as much as he was at war with his opponents, uh, it's just, uh, it's incredibly sad to see it all go that way and his career, uh, to see that his career to go, to, to, his, to, uh, to see his career go in that direction. Just uh, a fan favorite, uh, losing a step and then getting crushed over and over again. Unfortunate. Very unfortunate. And uh, the UFC... I would really like for the UFC to be held accountable for that. But, I mean, it's the UFC. It's... Uh, uh, the fans... The fans are likely to just brush... To simply brush Tony off as uh, as a hype job. And say that he was never good. Or that his uh, resume doesn't hold up. All sorts of nasty stuff that uh, doesn't work in context. Uh, MMA fans don't understand what uh, nuance really is and to that point uh, I have to say that uh, Benny had uh, a little diatribe after the fight in the post-fight interview where he went like my heart uh, goes out my condolences to all the to all the victims of uh, Marxist regimes <laughs> whatever the fuck that means and that was uh, very out of left field, which I uh, I suppose knowing that uh, Benil Darius watches a lot of Praga U, it uh, makes a sort of sense, makes some sort of sense, but uh, it's still also unfortunate. Uh, also, he shouted out Elon Musk and uh, called out Elon Musk because he didn't give his wife a Tesla. Just bizarre. Uh, and yeah, uh, seen a lot of takes circ uh, circulating around uh, on the on the subject of uh, Marxism and all that, and uh, MMA fan base, the M MMA Twitter and the MMA fan fan base being uh, about as educated in political ideology as MMA fighters themselves. Uh, I didn't see a lot of stuff that uh, didn't see a lot of stuff that made a lot of sense or was all that uh, all that great, really. Stick to having terrible MMA takes. Stick to having terrible takes on fighting, as opposed to takes, uh, stick, as opposed to fields uh, other people are well versed in. <laughs> Just, oh God! Can't believe I have to talk about communism for the second time in a row. I mean, didn't didn't we have enough of it back when uh, Rose fought uh, Zhang Wei Li? You're not tired. You're not tired of it already, because I am. I covered this a little bit on uh, my pre on the previous episode of Tinkerdom. Well, not well, not this 
topic exactly, but I kind of uh, I talked about a thing that uh, that is ex- very crucial to this, to that is very pertinent to what I'm going to say now, in that uh, uh, economics is uh, usually is when it uh, comes down to it, economics is a, a science about solving human problems, solving problems that the human race faces overall as an entity as a species and that uh, incentives is what usually dictates uh, is what dictates houses incentives are what lies at the core of uh, the question uh, of in which direction this the human uh, a human society will develop in the thing with uh, uh, the thing with capitalism i guess is that uh while it it can be too much sometimes while it is uh, well it does lead to a lot of shitty shitty things happening around the world it's also as opposed to say authoritarian states that uh, declare themselves to be socialist uh, all the terrible things that are happening under capitalism aren't really features there are indeed genuine bugs and with a, a certain amount of uh, mixing and matching certain uh, certain policies that they, they can they can be easily curtailed meanwhile with uh, socialist states it really is uh, more of a feature i'd say it's a it, it's going to make a lot of people mad but uh, as a person that grew up in former ussr as a person that grew up in russia and uh, as a person who's parents uh, and grandparents have experienced a lot of uh, shall we say uh, speculative social experiments on part of the Soviet Communist Party and uh, especially as a person that comes from uh, that uh, belongs to an ethnicity that has been historically gutted by uh, historically gutted culturally and economically and socially by uh, the policies by the policies enacted by the Soviet Communist uh, Party. As a person that has all these, I guess, tags, as uh, the woke woke types usually think about uh, minorities. Uh, like it, 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 that's the thing with woke people. It's usually not. Uh, they don't really. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them don't really think uh, about people like me. As people, we're kind of like, I've always got the impression that we're kind of just a bunch of tags, uh, like uh, search tags that you can input to them, as opposed to, as opposed to an actual human being. So having said all that, if uh, don't come at me with comments like read more theory, or read the black, big black book of communism, uh, uh, I'm just not going to bother with you. So I guess uh, to reiterate all that, to make it more understandable, Brett Mongolians have had their culture completely demolished by the Soviet policies. Uh, for example, under Stalin, uh, under under, uh, I'm going to lapse into my uh, into a Russian accent for a bit. Uh, under Yosef Stalin, during the 1930s. A number of uh, policies were enacted that uh, were directed at um, uh, battling the 
pan-Mongolist, uh, the pan-Mongolist sentiment that uh, was uh, all the rage in the region during that time. And the pan-Mongolist sentiment actually was in line with the um, uh, international internationalist communist uh, line of thinking. Many pan-Mongolists were convinced that communism is the way to go, and many uh, Buret Mongolians themselves actually thought that uh, communism is good. It brings things like education, it brings uh, new institutions uh, that are going to help combat uh, economic inequality and uh, all that stuff. But what uh, the communist, the Russian Communist Party did was, uh, because Buret Mongolians were pastoralists, by and large, the, the, and... Uh, uh, most importantly, pastoralist nomads, they kind of had to have way more cattle than the average Russian Russian peasant. That was considered to be out of line uh, for what is acceptable amount of public, uh, what is acceptable amount of, uh, what is the acceptable amount of private property you can own. So all that, a lot of Buret Mongolians were labeled uh, kulaks, uh, you would be called a kulak, which means you're... It's uh, really not a, an easily, clearly defined term, and it's on purpose. It's deliberately uh, defined that way. It's a very vague term uh, that makes it easy to just kind of label you a traitor to the state and then take all your property away from you and uh, either throw you to rot in jail, throw you into a labor camp and work you to death, or just, or just shoot you. And so while all that was happening, what Stalin did was to rename the Buret Mongolian ASSR into simply the Buret ASSR. And uh, there, were, there was a consistent, com there was a campaign to suppress knowledge about Mongolian history, about the Mongolian language, and it all persisted. And, uh, and yeah, and there was also a thing where all of political terminology that uh, the Buret Mongolian language already had was replaced with Russian equivalents. And so the language itself was gutted. And it was simplified in order to, be, to make it uh, more worker-friendly because uh, it was considered to be too complicated for a worker's mind to comprehend. Uh, and, uh, especially for a Russian worker's mind to comprehend, which is a crucial point, which is another, it's another point that has to be uh, emphasized. And so the, this campaign persisted way until, way into the days, basically it persisted up until the USSR itself fell apart, up until it dissolved. And so now, uh, as a consequence, we have a nation that uh, no longer considers itself Mongolian even, that uh, where the where up to 80% of the population does not understand their own native language, do not remember their culture, and in fact, being showing any semblance of uh, reverence towards your own culture is considered, well, it's considered in no uncertain terms, cringe. It's a sign of a country bumpkin, if anything. Like someone like me, <laughs> because I come from a village and I care about my culture and I try to relearn my language, which I, I have not spoken ever since I turned five and had to go to the to a school in the city because 
the local village school was uh, naturally not up to snuff when it came to uh, educational standards. I can go on forever about this stuff. I can go on and on and on about how uh, the USSR has harmed my culture. And naturally, the Russian Empire didn't really... The, the, the century spent... The two centuries spent under the rule of uh, the Russian Empire didn't really help matters. But uh, one thing that needs to be pointed out is that uh, during the Russian Empire days, at least the Badet Mongolians were kind of left to their own devices. We sort of just did our own thing. We had our pastures, we had our uh, nomadic routes uh, and uh, routes, rather. We had our... Uh, we were allowed to move from place to place freely without uh, being uh, forced to settle down and uh, lead a settled life along with uh, uh, along with the Russian peasants that uh, hated our guts along racial lines. I mean, restricted restricted freedom of movement is a surefire is a sure sign of things not going in in a good direction. Most of the time, it's a sign of the fact that the state wishes to know where you're at <laughs> at any given moment and wishes to know your location at any given moment, so you're easier to track down. All right, to get to my point, to not spend too much uh, too much time waffling on about this, uh, the problem I have with uh, with uh, the way. Uh, Western lefties in particular treat uh, communism and socialism and Marxism is that while yes uh, the the way it's um, discussed in America is uh, incredibly harmful and things like PragerU are incredibly poor sources of information because they are ideologically charged uh, they're essentially right-wing propaganda and right-wing propaganda is uh, well, the U.S. is rife with it, and the Western world and Europe and uh, North America in general is also rife with it. But the problem I have with uh, uh, communism, I just I'm just going to continue saying communism is just the, as a, as an umbrella term. Uh, the thing with it is that I th it's it's the same problem I have with uh, it's going to be a weird parallel, but it's the same problem I have with uh, bet betters and the way betters approach picking fights. Because a lot of the time, betters talk about having skin in the game. And by having skin in the game, they mean betting money on things. And because they bet money on things, they think they are more qualified to talk about the fight because they actually have a stake in it. The problem with that is that because you have a stake in it, you now you are now compelled to work your way backwards to rationalize your decision and not the other way around. You're not using your uh, a rational process and a rational thought process to come to a conclusion based on evidence. You're taking an end goal and working your way backwards to establish how you got there. So uh, in any normal, uh, in any normal uh, line of work, uh, in, in business it's usually called a conflict of interest you're introducing a conflict of interest by putting money on things p betting money on an outcome you're not thinking rationally about this 
And so with communism, it's kind of like that. And with uh, especially Twitter lefties, it's uh, a lot of the time it's also like that. They are completely, uh, completely certain of their moral superiority because they are not right wing, because they are not conservative. And in a sense, I understand why they think that because a lot because pretty much all conservatives are dickheads. So. A lot of their decisions and a lot of their positions are dictated by a desire to hold moral high ground and to be, uh, well, ide ideology is uh, the root of all things. They stick to an ideology and work their way backwards to justify why, why it should work. And I'm not saying capitalism, um, proponents of capitalism don't do that. Uh, in fact, it's kind, of, um, it's kind of the normal human thing to do. Rational thinking and scientific the, the scientific methods are uh, are a fairly modern invention, as opposed to the way the human brain has been developing and working, uh, pretty much for the duration of uh, pretty much for the entire existence of the human race, uh, which is which ties back to what I was talking about in the previous episode about heuristics, it's me mental tricks, mental shortcuts, as opposed to uh, an actual rational, well thought out process of coming to a conclusion based on data. And um, back to the to my person to examples from my personal life. A lot of people say things like, "Well, the USSR wasn't real communism. China isn't real communism. Cuba, Venezuela, Kampuchea, whatever, was not real communism slash socialism slash whateverism." It feels like a huge cop out to me. It's so like it's it automatically kind of makes your makes your theory unfalsifiable. And when a theory is unfalsifiable and unfalsifiable in scientific discourse, it usually means that it's anti-scientific. It's not scientific. It doesn't work. It's unfalsifiable and therefore unprovable. So like socialism or communism. Uh, is the end goal here so because uh, like even if hypothetically post scarcity gay space communism is achievable and may hypothetically be a lot better the costs of attempts to achieve it could be so high that it would be conceivably uh, that conceivably the benefit of just sticking with what we with, with uh, what we have right now and trying to refine that uh, makes a lot more sense and would uh, uh, save us the misery and uh, the pain that uh, it would take to get us there. When you're trying to come up with things to prove that uh, your ideology is the bestest and will work, you're working your way backwards and so you're not really operating on uh, evidence and uh, data. And a lot of people, and since human beings... Uh, being the way we are, nine times out of ten, it doesn't lead us anywhere good. So, to Yaldiar, even though Benny is an idiot for watching PragerU, and uh, that uh, his, uh, him being, like, shout out to all the people killed by communism was incredibly weird, and uh, simping for Elon Musk or whatever he did was uh, incredibly cringe, incredibly cringeworthy, and I do not support all, any of it at all, uh, MMA Twitter also needs to shut the fuck up and learn their history. 
and uh, just breed more in general. All right, I think I've uh, prattled on about uh, this whole mess for way too long, and I apologize for that. But it's just a topic I couldn't uh, couldn't help but uh, touch upon. And uh, I mean, the U.S. political discourse, the political discourse in the U.S. has been so incredibly harmful to terminology and understanding ideology that um, uh, we're still. I think we're going to be dealing with this whole silliness, with this silliness for a long while. We're going to be dealing with this silly silliness and stupidity for for years and end, for years to come. Because people don't even know what uh, commonly agreed on terms even mean anymore because the, the context for them in the US has been so warped that uh, that uh, liberalism is considered something bad among uh, Twitter lefties, even though I've always thought that. And the way it's used in the Russian context is that you're, you hold progressive views and are staunchly anti-conservative. But... Uh, in the in the US, it's it now means like uh, a vaguely quasi right wing person that just uh, professes to hold progressive views when but to support regressive policies in practice. I don't know. It's 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 bizarre. It's a mess. Uh, if you've stopped listening right now, I completely understand it. <laughs> but. Uh, Onto the onto more interesting, onto the actual topics I wanted to cover in the first place. Charles Oliveira versus Michael Chandler. <laughs> uh, what's an awesome awesome fight? Uh, amazing performance by, I mean, both these men by Chucky Ollis, especially Chucky Ollis because he won obviously. Uh, Nineteen seconds into into the second round, knocked Michael Chandler stiff. I'm pretty proud of my read on this fight because, uh, I mean, it, it's turned out to be one of those fights where everyone turned out to be right. But uh, my read was that I kind of essentially picked everything to happen because this matchup was chaos. Uh, I've said uh, coming into this fight that this matchup is chaos and that uh, it's going to be fireworks from the get-go and because both are incredibly potent finishers. And uh, both are incredibly dangerous in the first stretch of the fight. And uh, I've said, I've talked about... Hold on, let me pull up my uh, Staff Picks article. Uh, well, not my Staff Picks article. The Staff Picks article where everyone outlined their thoughts. So, uh, what, we, what I have had, uh, my thoughts coming into the fight were that... Oliveira's tendency to aggressively pursue submissions may work to Chandler's favor, which happened. But also Chandler bizarrely jumped at Gilly and uh, didn't really have uh, solid positioning on it. Uh, I don't know what he was trying to accomplish there, but he still he is still strong and uh, athletic enough to have managed to get out from that from under Oliveira, who uh, had maintained back control for a good portion of uh, round one and but then was able to get out of there and then uh, basically just uh, kick Oliveira's ass he rocked Oliveira really badly and it looked very close it looked 
very close, like uh, he was about to finish Oliveira. And uh, it looked like Oliveira was about to give up. And it's uh, a... It's uh, it, some fans uh, of Oliveira dispute this. In fact, uh, I've had an argument with a Discord patron over it today. But he had a, the the he had a concerning tendency to kind of fold under pressure and to give up. Whether it is a whether it is a side effect of uh, uh, him pushing a pace he cannot keep, or physical fragility, or uh, a side effect from the weight cut because he used to fight at feather, featherweight uh you i can't uh, I, I can't say i'm sure which one is it whether it's a psychological issue or whether it is a physical issue i think uh, i think the most likely uh, answer is that it's um, it's a result of uh, a combination of various different physical and mental factors but nonetheless it's um, my read was that Chucky Olives, even though he has like 40 fights, the fact that he was able to save his durability for the fights that really mattered is uh, what's uh, going to play a huge role in this particular fight against Mike Chandler, who, despite being one of the most dogged and uh, tough competitors in the sport, in the lightweight division in the world, the fact that he refused to give up even when things were going to, going very badly uh, in uh, five very grueling five-rounders, like, for example, against uh, Eddie Alvarez. This also means that the mileage that uh, he has uh, built up, the mileage that has built up on his body vastly exceeds that of uh, Oliveira's. There was also a sequence where Oliveira kicked uh, Chandler's leg from under him, I've pointed out that uh, Chandler does not like getting kicked up, whether it's due to some kind of weird issue he has with his leg, because uh, there were moments in certain fights where he like stepped weird, and then uh, his leg was clearly compromised after that. But uh, in this case, it was just a really good calf kick that took uh, Chandler's feet from under him. And uh, Chandler being so bouncy, it was probably he just probably caught him while his feet were in the air, which is what happened when uh, when Oliveira caught him with the, the finishing left hook in the finishing sequence as well. Like Chandler was resetting from that very committed right straight to the body he throws, and uh, he was caught with both of his feet in the air. If you pause this fight and uh, go to the finishing sequence. You'll you'll be able to clearly see that uh, his feet were not touching the ground when he got hit. So he it uh, essentially worked as he was squared up and not in stance and caught uh, while resetting with an incredible with an incredibly clean, efficient hook, which uh, had uh, the commentary team jizzing themselves, jizzing themselves, yelling that uh, Oliveira is technically perfect, and I mean just fuck off with that shit. The fact that Oliveira is not perfect is why this fight mattered so much, is why this win matters so much. Is It's that he has an incredible amount of loss and uh, he's defensively porous and uh, he had many people doubted his ability to hang in there when things got tough and he, he proved all of them wrong. So don't take away from him by implying he's some kind of dominant monster. Which is also a thing that uh, got on my nerves today a little, is that... Uh, when the scorecards were released, it showed that 
two of the, of the three judges scored the first round for Chandler. It was they scored a ten eight for Chandler in the first round, and people got mad at it because uh, uh, Chucky Olives had back, had, I don't know, had like twenty seconds of back control where he did nothing. So I mean, it's like make up your mind, please. A lot of the time, many fans are like, "Oh, oh the judges don't know how to score," and they don't. But this this score, this scorecard was correct. So it's kind of like they're just uh, getting mad at the scorecard because uh, a judge scored uh, a round against the guy they liked. <laughs> it's just bizarre. It's like the the Habib situation all over again. Like, Habib gave up the first round while trying to navigate his way towards his win condition, and he did. But uh, in the process, uh, he he lost the round because Gage hit him with every power shot he threw, even if he did look sloppy and panicky doing it. But in the end, if anything, it, that's even more impressive than Habib just playing steamrolling just in every round because it shows... Habib's uh, strategic acumen and discipline, because he was able, he was willing to to, to, give, to give up the round to get to the finish, to finish the fight, uh, to get to his win condition, and uh, just uh, definitively cement the outcome he needed. And uh, it makes the win look better in retrospect, because he had to work with it, uh, work for it. And uh, the same happened here. Well, not not exactly the same way because Oliveira nearly got finished, but he was able to overcome overcome adversity, uh, find his heart, dig deep, come back, and win in an, in an incredibly violent and impressive fashion. And well, to be fair, Chandler's defense when rocked is uh, uh, is uh, very defensively porous at the best of times. But his instincts on defeat uh, in the finishing sequence were not great at all. Uh, he just kind of uh, ran along the fence and got chased down with left hooks. Uh, he ran straight into them. And uh, Jackie Olives just simply could not miss on Chandler. <laughs> uh, there was, uh, in the first round, the, the, the way uh, Chucky actually secured that uh, back take position was very funny because Chandler. Sort of, it looked like Chandler tried to flip over Chucky Olives by jumping straight in straight in the air. It, it's like he tried to somersault over him while Chucky Olives was uh, uh, was uh, had his grips in and holding him uh, around the around the waist. That was strange, but I mean, I suppose that's just uh, athlete brain uh, leading to uh, having an athlete. An incredibly athletic body leading to uh, having strange lapses in judgment and uh, overestimating your ability to explode out of things to the point where you are trying to jump straight into the air out of a incredibly secure hold. <laughs> so that was strange and funny and bizarre. But yeah, all credit to Chuck on this one. So I suppose... Uh, uh, so from the way they promoted Justin Gaethje, uh, they showed the Justin Gaethje promo uh, right after the um, right after the fight. Oh, and by the way, what's the deal with Joe Rogan interviewing uh, fighters who 
just been knocked out. It's like it's like a the fifth time in a row I'm seeing that in the in on the main card in the main event. It's 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 like every single fighter that that got knocked out recently got interviewed. I don't know what happened with the policy of not interviewing fighters who just got concussed and don't know where they are, but apparently it's back now. Don't I don't know whether they are contractually obligated by the by ESPN now to do it, but uh, I just don't get it. It's bizarre. It's strange. It should go. It should go away. It's embarrassing for the fighter involved, and it's also just plain not a good look for the company. Uh, like that's uh, like one particularly egregious example was uh, them interviewing Zhang Weili, a person that does not speak English and just got domed with a with a head kick clean on the jaw and being all like, "What's your thoughts on getting domed with a head kick?" Chinese person that does not speak English. Just what in the fuck? But yeah, uh, they showed a Justin Gagey promo uh, in the post fight, and uh, and that makes me think. At least I assume that they, uh, that uh, Chucky Olives, uh, uh, Chuck's next Chuck's next defense, uh, Chuck's next uh, title defense will be against Justin Gagey. Even though I would like uh, for Chuck to face uh, uh, Dustin Poirier. Uh, if he wins against Conor McGregor, so that way his title would be legitimized, and I think my, many of my colleagues would agree on that. Because uh, if anything, the, I treat Dustin Poirier's fight against Conor as uh, essentially a fight for the vacant belt, which is should which it uh, really should have been, like uh, after Khabib retired, because Dana was chasing Khabib so hard, like a like a. Like a scorned lover, they refused uh, to vacate the belt, and the timing was such that um, enough time has passed. Enough time had passed for me to consider the Connor fight to be the title fight, which it wasn't. But uh, I mean, who cares? Belts are a belts are just a joke now, really. Chucky Olives winning the belt was uh, very emotionally fulfilling, at least. So at least it carried the emotional impact of a title fight. But uh, all things considered, I'd say he needs a couple more wins to solidify his position as a legit lightweight champion. Not taking away from him, great performance, great fight. Especially after all these years and especially after... All this abused, uh, all the all this abuse heaped uh, heaped on uh, Chucky Olives for supposedly being a quitter and uh, him proving everyone wrong. That uh, post-fight quote was class, by the way. The way uh, Chucky Olives uh, went, like Mike said, uh, "I don't have it, don't have it in me to hang in, uh, hang in in there when the going gets tough," but. Uh, uh, I'm still here. I managed to tough it out. I took uh, Chandler's best shots and I won. Not even being cocky or anything, just stating stating the truth. That's great. I'm always here for always here for fighters being kind of uh, showing confidence in themselves without really being without really going overboard, you know. So that was refreshing. <laughs> there was also a really funny Twitter exchange where some guy went like, "Oh, 
I've been saying this for years, but now is the time when grapplers dominate MMA. Because BJJ is the best base for MMA, or the best martial arts, the martial art in the world. And Chucky always went like, no, I'm not a grappler, I'm an MMA fighter. So, uh, sorry folks, uh, especially BJJ folks, but uh, Chucky Olive said that BJJ is fake. It's confirmed now. <laughs> We've known it for years, but now it's uh, it's been uh, now it's been cemented. <laughs> now we know for sure. <laughs> All right, now that I've alienated half my listeners by prattling on about uh, political ideologies for like. 30 minutes and then uh, spending like what 10 10 7 minutes talking about the actual main event and uh, ending my thoughts with oh yeah that was a great fight but uh, Chucky still needs, needs to beat up like 10 more guys to prove that he's a real champion <laughs> i suppose uh, uh we can uh, start working away to Start working our way to the conclusion of this podcast. Or start working our way towards the conclusion of this podcast, I should say. I don't know. Uh, it's almost 3am. My English is uh, it's uh, falling to pieces, much like uh, Michael Chandler's chin. Oh, one thing I didn't mention. Well, I guess I did say th- uh, stuff about uh, Chandler's uh, mileage, but uh, like... Um, he used to be, uh, uh, those of you who have listened to the MMA podcast and read the staff picks would know that uh, I've said that uh, Chandler used to be incredibly durable and now he's just kind of normal durable. And uh, I've seen people say that Chandler is chinny. I'm not so sure about that. I wouldn't say that he is chinny. He just caught with an incredibly well-placed, well-timed counter. Uh, while while giving the counter the momentum it needed, adding to it to its power by because he got caught while rebounding back into his stance from being essentially square, so he turned his entire body into it. While Jackie was also turning uh, a lot of his body weight into it, uh, so it's kind of like a confluence of factors that uh, led to him getting finished. It was a really good counter. Really good hard shot. So I wouldn't say that he is chinny yet. There is a concern that his uh, durability may be going because he's been in many wars over the course of his career and uh, the uh, uh, the Patricky Pitbull knockout was concerning. I'm, I'm sorry, the good Pitbull knockout was concerning. The Patricio Pitbull Knockout was concerning, and uh, the Brent Primus fight was weird. Will Brooks as well, but uh, you know, chins are weird. Chins are strange like that. If you don't believe me, go back and watch the Barbosa fight. Uh, the Barbosa fight against Burgos. The Barbosa Burgos fight. I'm going to. I'm going to keep repeating things until I get them right. <laughs> until I get the, the grammar nailed down. I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to uh, hop back on uh, Ed's uh, Ed and Through Arms MMA podcast to talk about the fight some more, to discuss them in uh, a bit more technical detail than uh, today, because uh, I've kind of I kind of had a bunch of um, preliminary thoughts 
after my uh, after my after my first rewatch of the card, and uh, I was afraid that I'm going to lose uh, all the uh, lose my trail of thought and uh, forget what I wanted to talk about uh, in the morning. And uh, it took a while for me to formulate what I wanted to say, and uh, I just. Uh, kind of forgot about forgot that time exists and uh, looked at the clock and I went to, uh, and it was 1 a.m. and I was like oh, f- oh shit and went like kind of like, went like ah fuck it might as well do it and then go to sleep so i suppose this is uh, this is my built-in excuse for this podcast i have uh, i'm very sleepy i'm kind of cranky because I've seen a lot of dumb takes and a lot of stupid things happened. Pretty much par for the course in this sport, but I mean, it still it still gets on my nerves sometimes. But I nonetheless hope that this uh, this rambly mess uh, turned out to be uh, a, a decent enough listen, if nothing else. So the plan is, next week I'm going to follow uh, follow up on my listener mailbag. Uh, the first part of my listener listener mailbag episode, where I'm gonna talk about um, where I'm gonna answer some more questions from my patrons, and I think I'm going to shift the combat sports news recap towards uh, a different format. I'm I think I'm going to just only to just talk about the news that happened, as opposed to both recapping the events and. Uh, uh, talking about the news and uh, previewing the uh, announced fights, because uh, Fenio has other things to do. Uh, he also produces uh, con- content on a consistent basis. He produces uh, fight breakdowns, and uh, I don't want to. And uh, since the last uh, episode that uh, lasted for up to an hour, I almost uh, bricked his computer. Uh, I think I'm, uh, I'll try and make it easier for him to. <laughs> to edit uh, the combat sports news recap in order to produce it faster and i'm going to go back to the weekly format of just uh, immediately recording a tengri dome after the fight to break to talk about the fights and then just kind of refer to them refer to the tengri domes on the recap just kind of go and if you want to hear my thoughts on this such and such fights uh, go back and listen to the podcast that kind of stuff and uh, Ed and Ed and Sriam, uh, have recorded uh, alternate commentary for the three fights I've talked about already. Naturally, up on uh, up on the Fight Side Podcast Network, and uh, I'd recommend you sign up to the three dollar Patreon tier to get access to the video version because it's much easier, it's much more convenient to watch them that way to listen to them that way, and. Uh, Ed uh, has started a series called Bad Calls, where he talks about uh, terrible MMA judging and uh, evaluates notorious robberies. Speaking about bad judging, if you wanna wanna see what actual horrible judging looks like, I would refer you to that series by Ed. <laughs> Some of the fights he, he reviews there, I just the decisions boggle the mind, and. Uh, uh, me, Dan, and Hex uh, have also fulfilled a Patreon request that uh, was uh, the request was uh, that I sh- I would should sit down and uh, commentate a 
a 90-minute fight from uh, Hajime no Ippo. And those of you who don't know, Hajime no Ippo is a prominent uh, boxing manga and uh, anime, an anime series that, that's been adapted into an anime series. And uh, incidentally, a lot of uh, MMA people kind of... Uh, not uh, all of them, not uh, like a, a very significant portion of that, portion of them, but uh, a lot of them got into combat sports and uh, watching fights through that series. So it's kind of a, a bit of a staple. And uh, we commentate and discuss the fight. Uh, it's almost a two and a half hour podcast. We we First we commentated the fight and uh, discussed uh, the things that happened and uh, the, the, uh, the pros and cons and the positives and negatives we have with that... Uh, with the, both the fights and the series itself, and then we we discussed the series, sort of gave it, uh, gave, gave sort of reviewed it, shared our thoughts on its development and uh, how it's faring right now, because it's still ongoing, and talked about talked about fights in media in general, uh, how to write a compelling fight, how to how to write a fight that would make. Uh, the viewer feel invested into what is happening and just kind of talked about rules of fiction uh, the rules of writing compelling fiction as well it's very likely that I, I think it warrants being uh, a, a Patreon exclusive I think I'm going to release it for the $3 tier but I mean if you sign up to the $3 tier uh, you, you you get so much more than just just than, than just me, Dan and Hex talking about yelling about and swearing about anime. <laughs> You're also getting access to all the other cool stuff that we've released over the years, which I think one of our patrons actually counted well over two hundred, uh, two hundred video videos and uh, audio tracks and uh, podcasts. So it's well worth your while, I would think. I mean, it's only three dollars per month, and you're also going to get weekly. Uh, Patreon content like uh, the alternate commentaries and uh, resume evaluations and all that stuff. Though nonetheless, I would highly suggest you sign up at the $5 tier because then you gain access to our Discord server, server where you can uh, interact with our staff, ask us questions on obscure topics or just plain talk shit to us. Uh, or to indeed talk shit with us. <laughs> Please be nice. But I mean, if you just want a bit of banter about combat sports and uh, other topics, just, just feel free to hop in. It's only $2 uh, on top of the $3 for which you can get access to all all the good stuff. You're, you're also going to be able to ask me questions that uh, in the Tengridome channel of our Discord server, where, which I'm going to answer in the form of uh, listener mailback episodes of Tengridome. So I'd say it's a good bargain, uh, good bargain, bargain. Wait, hold on. Uh. Bargain, bargain, bargain. Hmm. Eh, I'm going to figure this one out for the next episode. <laughs> it's worth your while. That's all I'm going to say. Alright, that's uh, all my stuff and uh, all of TFS stuff plugged. Also, naturally, check out our website uh, 
where we where we post our articles, our written stuff. Uh, speaking of which, uh, Hexerized also wrote a very, a very compelling piece on Tony Ferguson, which I feel is especially, which I feel is especially relevant now, more than ever. It's called "How I Learned to Stop Caring and Love Tony Ferguson" or something like that. It's a reference to Doctor Strangelove. Uh, it's a really good article, very moving, very thorough and measured. Uh, I'd highly recommend you check it out. All right. Mm. I suppose that's enough of that. Stick around for the upcoming listener mailbag episode and uh, for the MM for Eden Thrones MMA podcast that is also going to concern itself with UFC 262 uh, with uh, with I'd imagine way more technical detail uh, being discussed with uh, with uh, with Ed in particular going more into the all the grappling stuff or the grappling wrestling stuff being the wrestling talking man of uh, the fight side and uh, because Sriram is uh, the resident Benil Darush expert I'm sure he's also going to have some very interesting things to say about the fight be very excited and uh, this has been Tengridome episode 12 until next time Dahin, Ozotra, Bayerte.